I'm just going to test the sound for a second. How's that? It's, is, it, is it really loud? No. Not yet. I haven't started singing yet. So yeah, it'll get loud then. Can you hear me up there all the way? Yeah, okay. Can you hear me over here? It sounds really loud up here. So that's why I was just checking. Okay. So, uh, welcome to your Sangha. <laughs> it's nice to be here visiting and welcoming you. Um, but my name's Will Kabat Zinn. I've been here before, but not for a while. Uh, I, I can't remember when the last time was, but a year ago? Yeah, it's close to that, I think. Um, I won't tell you my whole story. I'll just give you a really brief. I live in the Bay Area. Uh, I teach meditation. Uh, And uh, uh, I teach some at Spirit Rock and uh, at other centers. I travel a little bit doing that around uh, the country, mostly out here. Uh, I have a weekly group also in in West Berkeley on Sunday evenings, and um, uh, I have a day job too. Uh, And I, I love this stuff, so it's always fun to share it and talk about it. I don't get tired of it. Well, sometimes I get tired of it. Sometimes I get tired of hearing myself talk. So I was trying to decide what to do with you tonight, what to share with you, and I still haven't decided. <laughs> so I'm curious to see what happens. Uh, I, I had the thought to share a poem uh, because we're in this Berkeley Buddhist monastery. Uh, it's a it's a Chan monastery, right? Ch- yeah, Chinese tradition. And uh, there's a beautiful. Is this? I don't know if this is kosher in terms of traditional loyalty, but uh, there's a beautiful poem uh, from the Chan tradition that I love and thought it might be fun to read and talk about a little bit. Uh, I think it relates a lot to Vipassana practice, so uh, it might inform that. But I, I don't have time to talk about most of the poem because it's kind of a long poem. That's my dilemma. If I read it to you, it'll take up a good amount of the time. So Maybe I'll re- I could read a few lines of it. I could talk about that. It might be good. Uh, but I also like to do Q&A, uh, or more than Q&A, kind of dialoguing a little bit, because that's also more fun for me, because then I get to hear a little bit about what you are all doing and kind of where your uh, minds are at in terms of interfacing with, with this practice and what you're doing in your own life and practice. So maybe we'll do some of that too. I'll try not to talk too long. Okay, so I'll read the poem. I'll read a few lines of the poem. I also have the middle-length discourses of the Buddha, so I thought maybe I could... (laughs) It's okay. We'll get to you. So, 
This poem is called Guidepost to Silent Illumination. Uh, silent illumination is another way of saying the practice of, uh, of sitting, of just sitting. Uh, you know, in, the, uh, in Japanese Zen, that's often in the Soto tradition. Uh, they do uh, some of that sitting. Uh, and, and I have, uh, I used to study with a, a teacher from Taiwan who's now passed away named Sheng Yen, Master Sheng Yen. Uh, and he called what he thought silent illumination. Uh, he loved this poem, and that's really so I first heard it from him. Uh, but it it uh, it very much relates with the, the vipassana practice. Is that the sound system? <laughs> It breathes. It lives. Nice. He's curious. Uh, and it's interesting, and just a little word aside about the traditions is that, you know, they, they although they're, the pra- practices are very different, you know, and the methods can be very different, they're really, I mean, they're, they're, there's only one mind. Yeah? The human mind, it can't be like, the human mind can't be that different in Tibet than it is in Burma. You know, I mean, culture may be very different, but, uh, and that's, I think, part of what the Buddha, why the Buddha's teachings are relevant uh, here and everywhere, is that uh, Buddha looked into what it is to be human, not what it is to be, you know, a person living where he did, when he did. Uh, so these are sort of universals, and we can really be informed by the various traditions, uh, Sometimes different aspects of the Dharma are illuminated in different ways. So it's good to have a root, I think, a root in one, to some depth and kind of depth of experience in, in, in one tradition that can be very helpful. Um, but it's okay to uh, be open. We live in Berkeley, after all. Yeah. And it's a actually a rare time in history, and you know, in the past, you got what they what they kind of had where you lived. You know, there, there really wasn't a lot of. Uh, I mean, of course, there were trade routes and things. Uh, you know, depending on where you lived, you might be exposed to more or less. But here, there really is kind of an unprecedented uh, kind of cross pollination of traditions, and it's it's interesting. Uh, I certainly feel that I've benefited from that. I'm benefiting from it, or at least it makes things fun. It's okay to have fun. In this uh, guidepost to silent illumination. And uh, of course, I'm not going to be able to pronounce the name the way it's supposed to be, because I don't know how to pronounce uh, you know, the Chinese. But uh, the way it's transliterated, Hongxi. Uh, oh, forgive me if you the language. Silent and serene. I'm just going to read you the. I'm just going to read the first four uh, little sections. Silent and serene, forgetting words. Bright clarity appears before you. When you reflect it, you become vast. Where you embody it, you're spiritually uplifted. Spiritually solitary and shining, inner illumination restores wonder. Dew in the moonlight, a river of stars, snow-covered pines, clouds enveloping the peak. In darkness, it is most bright. While hidden, it is all the more manifest. read that again. Silent and serene, forgetting words, bright clarity appears before you. When you reflect it, you become vast. Where you embody it, you are spiritually uplifted. Spiritually solitary and shining, inner illumination restores wonder. 
Dew in the moonlight, a river of stars, snow-covered pines, clouds enveloping the peak. In darkness, it is most bright, while hidden, it is all the more manifest. This is from the uh, late 11th century. So it's it's actually a, a description of practice. Well, just, I'm just going to sort of go line by line and just see what kind of, if we can open it up a little bit, talk about what's in here. The first line, silent and serene, forgetting words. It's interesting, you know, when I first heard it, it, was, it got seared in my mind, that first line, but it's a it's like it was from the translator who I was hearing it from, so it's they're actually kind of the wording's a little different. It was silent and serene, one forgets all words clearly and vis- clearly and vividly it appears before you anyway, same gist so I, this part about forgetting words what does that mean silent and serene so one forgets all words or Forgetting words, bright clarity appears before you. This is pointing to the way in which we tend to live in a world of concepts. And concepts are wonderful, they're useful. It's not knocking concepts, but... uh, Yes. In a way, the concepts can be an obscuration. When we get stuck in the concept level and fail to see through the thought. So simple examples are, well, I don't know that many of you, some of you I do, but you know, you look at somebody, you know, family member maybe, somebody you see often, have a lot of interaction with, and you know their name, and you know stuff about them. And so you have a story about who they are, and you're sort of used to them being who they are. And it's very easy when you see them or in in contact with them to kind of be seeing this idea of them your preformed idea, which is, comes from the past. Yeah. So in a way, you're not really seeing what's in front of you. You're seeing through. I mean, some of what you're seeing is in front of you. If they're wearing a funny hat, you'd see that. It's not like you're not seeing anything. But there's a kind of a veil over direct experience, which is uh, the story, the concept, the idea. Similarly, we walk around all the time and, and we, we're familiar with stuff. Like, okay, that's a chair. This is the Berkeley Buddhist Monastery. I come here every Thursday. Uh, you know, there's so-and-so and there's so-and-so. And that's a street and these are flowers. And, right? This is me. That's the best one. This is me. I know me. <laughs> you know? Uh, so it's just this kind of... It's useful to have names for things. It's not that that's not... But that's... Uh, it becomes so habitual that we, that life becomes kind of boring and stale, and it starts to feel very. Um, uh, it can have a, a dead quality, uh, an unsatisfyingly dead quality. And this is, uh, because we're not, because we're living with a a very, very heavy filter over uh, our experiencing. So, silent and serene, forgetting words, is only pointing to when that concept level is not at the fore. 
doesn't mean you don't have it or you don't have access to it. But when it is not the predominant thing, bright clarity appears before you. And one aspect of bright clarity is a bright clarity of experience. The world becomes bright, vivid, The world becomes, actually it doesn't become this, but the aliveness of experience yeah, the, becomes vivid. And we often experience this when we're doing something new, you know, when something new is happening. Then especially if we like what's happening, then we're kind of engaged in it, yeah? And then all of a sudden, yeah, we feel excited and the world looks, it has that shimmery quality to it. But we tend not to live there because how often are you experiencing things in that category? And this is, I think, partly why we become such slaves to to new experience. Kind of, constantly driven to find bigger, better, more stimulating experiences. Because actually, our, the vividness of our own experience is, has been deadened. Yeah. Deadened just because we've gotten lost, in a way, in, this, in a realm, a conceptual realm. We've gotten lost in the overlay. And in a way, the overlay or the, the concept aspect of experience, it's sort of, it's, um, we're not using it in the way uh, it's most useful. Yeah? Uh, concepts are most useful in terms of opening up experience yeah? and allowing us to describe what we see and categorize things. It's very useful. But they're not, it, they cease being useful when they become this and a barrier. Uh, and we also all know what that feels like to be on the receiving end of somebody who's in that overlay yeah? and interacting with us. It doesn't feel, well, you don't feel like you're actually being talked to yeah? or seen. Right? You almost might as well not be there or somebody's interacting with an idea of you. So just in the relational realm, this can be useful because we all experience this. So as we sit or as we practice informally, we allow the mind to quiet down a little bit. We spend some time with the breathing, just connecting it to our vipassana practice. We practice connecting with the breathing just in a very immediate and direct way. You don't need the concept breathing. It's helpful to say, I'm going to connect with my breathing, so there's a concept. Then you're feeling the breath, and then the concept was not needed so much. Then what we're practicing is being in touch with the living experience of breathing in, the living experience of breathing out. We practice it in a very simple way. And in the same way, we learn to relate to all of experience. Experiencing sensations in the body, moods and emotions, even thoughts in the mind, yeah, and sight, sound, smells, taste, touch. Uh, touches, that's not a word. But contact. Uh, in this very immediate, direct, intimate way. Connecting through the concept. You're looking at a tree. It's not that you're supposed to forget that it's a tree. You know, what is that strange thing with the? You know, you can't even say with the leaves. With those, you know, it's not that you're you're supposed to forget. But actually, maybe for a few moments, you will start to experience it that way. Yeah. Of course you can say, yeah, it's a tree. It's not a problem. 
But it's what we're practicing is being in direct contact with the thing itself. The living thing itself. And we can practice that all the time. It's, well, it makes life brighter. It allows us to be in contact with the brightness of existence. Uh, try it with your relatives. It's, that's where it's hardest. <laughs> okay, this is jumping ahead a little. That should be like, you know, that's like the PhD. You know, we've got to do elementary school first. And we should start in elementary school. But still, it can be really interesting because relatives are the people you have the most firmly established stories of. But see if you can just pretend that you'd never seen them before for just a few seconds. And just take a look, you know, like maybe, you know, when they're not looking at you, just... You know, they'll think you're weird if they see you, but it's okay. They think that anyway because you meditate, you know. You come to Berkeley Buddhist Monastery, so you're already a weirdo. So just, you don't have to be that dramatic about it. Yeah, just, it's, it can be very uh, illuminating, you know. Just kind of a moment of fresh seeing. But you can just do it walking down the street. So bright clarity appears before you. I could probably talk about just that one line the whole night. But we should... (laughs) There's a lot there. Um, And I'm trying to think of... Let's see. Okay. Yeah, I will. I'm not going to talk about it all night, but... So, bright clarity appears before you. So this brightness is not just about experience. It's not just that experience is bright. Actually, it's your mind that's bright. In that first translation where I first heard it, clearly and vividly it appears before you. Meaning, that which is reflected in your own mind, which is everything. It's actually awareness that everything is arising in. Your your awareness. If it wasn't, you wouldn't be experiencing it. If it wasn't arising in awareness, you wouldn't know it. So, where is everything arising? arising in you. Everything you're experiencing is arising in you. Yeah? You, in a, using the broader definition of you. It'll get really broad in a few minutes. So broad, then you may be like, is that me? <laughs> but let's start there, yeah? You, yeah? So this bright clarity is actually your own nature. And it's illuminating life. It's uh, it's the radiance of your being that you see reflected everywhere. The radiance of your nature. This part we miss. We might see the brightness of experience, but then it's just the world is bright. And it is. But we often miss this part of, we don't trace back the radiance. The radiance. What is the source of this radiance? And recognize that, oh, this radiance is actually... uh, Whoops, I'm giving a talk and I forgot words. But this radiance is of you. It's your radiance. So, silently and serene, silent and serene, forgetting words, bright clarity appears before you. A little dualistic in the phrasing, but we'll forgive him. Am I allowed to say that? When you reflect it, This is the next line. When you reflect it, you become vast. Where you embody it, 
you are spiritually uplifted. So this bright clarity, this uh, radiance, is here all the time because you're experiencing all the time. Yeah? And it may be clouded over by being experientially clouded over because we're living in just the realm of concepts. Yeah? Uh, but when we can recognize it, when we're not clouded by the concept, yeah, or just living through the veil of concept, and we can recognize this radiance as being the radiance of awareness, the radiance of our being. When you reflect it, yeah, so when you allow it, it's sort of funny language, but it's a pointer. You know? When you can let this brightness be reflected in your own, it's almost like rather than just being bright, as it always is, you know, because you know, when you look out, or, you, know, you go up into the Berkeley Hills and you look out, whoa, you see this vast landscape. Yeah, you see over the ocean and the Golden Gate Bridge, and, and on a beautiful day you just say, ah, you know, so beautiful, and water, the sun is shimmering off the water, and, and all of this is rising in your being. Yeah, it's all reflected in your awareness. That's why you're experiencing it. So that's always there. But when we can recognize this, that it's actually the aware quality, which is our being, then we are reflecting that. Yeah? Then we recognize ourselves as that. When you reflect it, you become vast. Or, you could say, when you reflect it, you realize that you are vast. That's another way to say that. You recognize your vastness. The vastness that you've forgotten about. That we've forgotten about. Or that we've never known was there. Or never recognized as there. Certainly never been taught is there. When you embody it, you are spiritually uplifted. Recognizing it is one thing, and embodying it is uh, even just in a moment. Yeah? To recognize yourself as that is upliftment. Because it is, lift, it is itself uh, It's many things, but you could say it's free and unbounded. It's already uplifted. Spiritually solitary and shining, inner illumination restores wonder. When we are in touch with this radiance of our own being. And we recognize it as solitary. Well, let's leave that for a moment. And shining. This illumination restores wonder. Yeah, then we see the wondrousness in everything. The bright in everything. This is where I think God language starts to make sense. You know? God is in everything. God is everything. God is reflect. This is, yeah? Because it's that transcendent dimension of experience reflected in everything. The small and the great, the trash and the, you know, the sewer as well as the mountain and the mist equally. This is where you can get that wonderful uh, Nasruddin story, Nasruddin being the, you know, the, the Persian mystic fool uh, 
uh, all these great stories about him, you know, and he's in the in the uh, mosque, the temple, and he's uh, sitting there with his boots up on the altar. That's a big no-no. You know? And uh, somebody comes in and says, Nasruddin, you cannot put your feet on the altar. That's holy. And of course he looks back and says, where would you like me to put them? Can you feel that? So, this is, well, I won't say anything about it. Do in the moonlight a river of stars, snow-covered pines, clouds enveloping the peak. In darkness, it is most bright, while hidden, it is all the more manifest. I'm going to not comment about the dew in the moonlight, a river of stars. That's a beautiful line. In darkness it is most bright, while hidden it is all the more manifest. What does that mean? In darkness it is most bright. There's a line in the Bhagavad Gita, actually, which is very similar to that. I can't remember what it, what it is exactly. It was something like the sage in the in the sees in the darkness, something like that. In the darkness, it is most bright, while hidden, it is all the more manifest. So sometimes, well, first of all, let's start with the second part of that. While hidden, it is all the more manifest. It's interesting about this radiance, this illumination which is our nature. This, uh, you call it awareness, whatever you want to call it, this beingness in which all experience is illuminated and reflected. Well, it is the basis of all experience. It is the vehicle of knowing. It is the most pervasive quality possible. It's the substrate in a way of all experience. But it has no shape, it has no color, it has no size. So it's completely hidden in the sense. We are always focused on objects in space. Yeah? We're always focused on people, the places, and the things we need to do. Yeah? the ideas, and we're so caught up in that level that we fail to recognize that in which everything is arising. All of the things and stuff that we're involved with, all the people and places, and we fail to recognize Call it the unity, that uh, the vehicle, whatever you want to call it. We fail to recognize the sort of primary element, if you will, yeah? because it, you can't see it. Like your own eyes. If you're, unless you look in a mirror, <laughs> if you're looking around, you can't see your own eyes. Yeah? Right? You can't look back into them and see them. But you can see. Yeah. Right? Similarly with, with awareness. If you look for awareness, you can't find it. Because it is not an it. It's not a thing. But if you stop looking, you recognize 
it is everywhere. It is everything. Yeah? It's what allows everything to be. So, while hidden, in a way, it is all the more manifest. It's manifesting, this brightness of your being. is manifesting everywhere. And this whole room, and everybody here, wow, what an amazing manifesting. Now, don't get confused and think, I am manifesting this room. That's from the book, The Secret. <laughs> which I have not read. But they, they kind of, it can be an egoic, I, kind of glomming on to this kind of idea, which is not the spirit of this. I am manifesting the room. That means... I am the one. <laughs> that means I am God. And you are, but that is wrong. <laughs> <laughs> that's an ego trip. Okay? That's co opting something with this little me. Uh, and it's delusion. Yeah, and, but it happens. You know? One can get in touch with this vastness and then kind of misinterpret it. Yeah, so it's good to talk about. So while you are manifesting the room in the sense of your beingness, manifests, everything is manifesting in your beingness. So you're vast beyond all imagining, really. But none of the things you think of as you, all of those things are appearing in this vastness too. <laughs> all your thoughts and feelings and emotions and this whole body and mind is a very small part of what you are. Yeah? So anyway, this is just a thing to note. It's not that I am that, and yet at the same time you are. Yeah? So... In darkness it is most bright. That's the first part of that. What does that mean? Well, uh, sometimes it's only when we uh, step out, because the world is so compelling and there's so much to do and see and be engaged in, sometimes it's actually only when we step out of that engagement, whether it be in meditation or going on a retreat. Sometimes it's only when we step out of that engagement, even step away from the engagement with kind of the obvious senses, you know, and come internally. Sometimes it's only then when we arrive at some stillness internally that we actually recognize this brightness. Yeah? In the darkness of not being involved in the sense world, sometimes that's the only time that we even notice it. Yeah? It becomes obvious because the other things aren't calling you so loudly. Yeah? It's like, um, uh, you ever see that a viral video going around for a while, that, that kind of experiment. It was a um, really interesting video where uh, it is, you can look it up on, I think it's called the Gorilla. Uh, actually, that gives it away. But <laughs> Basically, there's a group of people, and it's like a cognitive test. They're passing around a basketball, and you're asked to count the number of times that people wearing black shirts and people wearing white shirts. You're asked to count the number of times that people wearing the white shirts pass the basketball to each other. And then afterwards, you're asked to say, you're asked, did you notice anything unusual during that time? And many people, including me when I first saw it, say, I didn't notice anything unusual. Uh, and then they, they say, okay, watch the video again, but don't count. And they're passing the basketball, there's people standing in a circle, some are wearing black shirts, some are wearing white shirts, and uh, in the middle of the passing, somebody dressed in a gorilla suit runs out and does a dance right by the circle. It's like right in plain view. Does a dance and then runs past. But it's a very interesting thing. When you're focused and you're engaging your cognitive kind of capacity in this thing of counting where the people with the white shirts pass it, you cannot notice the gorilla in front of you <laughs> dancing. And it's a ridiculous-looking dance, and it's a 
full-on gorilla. And it's pretty amazing. I, the first thought I had was, that's not the same video. That's how grandiose my own sense of my own perception is. You know? Yeah. But it, I think it, is, it was the same video. I don't think they switched it up on me. Yeah? So it, we cannot see what's right in front of us. That's, I think that's what I take away from that. And it's actually a great metaphor for this awareness thing because we're so engaged in the task of the objects, you know, the basketball, the white shirts, that we just don't see. The, okay, it's weird to use a gorilla as a metaphor for awareness. But I'm going to do that. You know, we don't see the obvious thing, you know, which is... what is all over the place and everywhere yeah? and is really your own nature. That's enough for the poem for now. Uh, anybody want to... Um, we could stop there. We still have about 10 minutes or 15 minutes. But does anybody have anything you want to share or any kind of any questions about your practice or about anything I said or, or about anything? Basketball. Yeah. I just have a comment. I really like Oh, the microphone. Yeah, that's a good idea. Thank you. I don't know if it's on. Oh, can I just ask a process question first? What time do I need to stop? I stop at 9.30? Okay. I like that poem. I like the first uh, couple sentences. And it reminds me of uh, my experience in my own practice when um, I come in from a busy day in the afternoon uh, and I sit and there's um, this kind of this uh, moving from the chattering, moving from the dullness of uh, just seeing the world in gray tones into a more soft, open, and receptive. Uh, and I feel that um, the internal radiance and the external radiance uh, reflect each other, and there's just this light that's kind mm-hmm. of like a universal mm. experience. Mm. So, what's the name of the poem? Beautiful. It's called the. Uh Silent, it's not called silent illumination, it's called guidepost uh, of silent illumination. I, and I found it, although you could find it online, but uh, there's this nice collection called The Art of Just Sitting, which has some of these early uh, uh, poems and kind of teachings in it, but that's one place you can find this translation. But, yeah. Oh, so just another thing. Let's just also, as part of our practice, you know, sometimes when it shifts from the talk to the Q&A, you can just check in with yourself internally. You can shift modes, like, okay, now we're in the Q&A, you know. And so, like, ah, the usual thing, or whatever. But you can see if you can just notice when that shift happens for you, ever, whether it's here or anywhere, when that brightness goes away, and it's just like regular stuff, you know? And then you can pay attention to that. That can be a reference point, you know? And, you know, sometimes you just don't have access to the brightness at all, but it's still there. But but still, it's just good to notice that when you go into like, just, I know this already. And then see if you can just come back. That's the practice dimension of it. We can make it a practice. So anyway... Just an invitation. Yeah. Uh, Say something about the comparison between um, our true nature, which is shining and shimmery and Mm -hmm. frequently happens maybe when we we sit and we open our eyes and we become more aware. It doesn't doesn't happen then. It's happening all the time. But sometimes we... Compare that then, though, with with, uh, anatta, with non-self, with there is no nature to our being. Same. 
Is that enough? <laughs> I was expecting a couple of more words, but... <laughs> so much for expectations. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just teasing you. Uh, because of the true nature part as like a thing. So like the true nature seems like a thing. Yeah, you know, I, I think it's really just the language thing. This is my opinion, you know, and people, I mean, don't think that Buddhists don't get in really gnarly arguments about stuff, you know, like different traditions and I'm right and they're wrong and, you know, depending on what side of the Thai-Burmese border you're on, you have a very different idea of what, what the nature of the mind is, you know, but I'll just say the way I hold it, I think they're just different ways of describing the same thing. And that, that kind of, that, uh, whether you call it true nature or you call it selflessness, yeah, uh, it's just sort of, you can, you can sort of notice different facets of awareness. And so you call it awareness, it sounds like a thing. But say you take off the name, you don't call it awareness. Is it a thing? No. So it, it's really, I really think that it's a language thing. So like in, in, in uh, yeah. I mean, I think for me, it's the same. It, it, that's, that's no different. Then you can reify, and this is some of the, in different Tibetan traditions, even they get into this. Actually, there's some really nasty stuff that happens around this. Like fights, violence. I mean, don't think Buddhists are like exempt from that sectarian stuff. You know? But I think a lot of that whole debate is around whether you're reifying awareness or nature of mind or mind into a thing. You know? And who can tell if you're doing that? You know? Into a self. That's me. I think it's just a language thing. Like if you, some of the like Vedanta people, like uh, Nisargadatta Maharaj, I am that. You know, Buddhists wouldn't agree with that language, but I think he was as cooked as anybody. You know? uh, so it's, I think in terms of in connecting to the poem, the forgetting words part, I think that can be really useful. But you don't want to forget words too early. It's good to grapple with them. You know, like... Uh, and sometimes the way selflessness is talked about in the Theravada, some, in some of the Theravada tradition, they focus more on the objects. You know, like all phenomena are selfless, and that's true. If you look at f- the phenomenal realm, you don't. There's no. You can't find any self in the nature of causes and conditions and phenomena. You know, so in some in some teachings, there's more focus on the realm of objects and noticing that there's no thing that's substantial or permanent, and that's true. Yeah. And then in other teachings, the focus is more on the knowingness or the awarenessing, the awareness or the beingness, and not on the object. You know, and that not as an object. So you can get to freedom a lot of different ways. Uh, but in terms of the nature of it, I think it's the same. Yeah. That's a great question. I wasn't trying to be glib with you. Yeah. Uh, somebody want to football the microphone up top? Maybe you can just say it out loud. Yeah. Self-judgment? What about it? We love to do it. It's very prevalent. It's not fun. But what about, what, what about it? Like, like how to work with it? Or? Yeah. Maybe your personal experience in working with it. My personal experience in working with it? Yeah. Well, it's not that personal. Because it's just, that's what we have. Is we have self-judgment. It's really just like any kind of judgment. First of all, when you really look at it, it's very useful to see it. That's the first thing. You have to, and that's why having a meditative practice is so useful. You develop the capacity to watch your own mind. Until you can have enough stability of attention to watch your own mind, it's very hard to get free from anything. Yeah? That's why having a practice is so important. Because you can't see anything until you can watch your own mind. 
So you're just a victim of your mind. You're getting beat up all the time by your mind. And you can't see, it's like that thing I read about the, like in San Francisco, people were getting robbed when they were texting. And they couldn't report anything about the person who robbed them. <laughs> because they were looking in their phone when they got hit. I mean, that's sad, but there was, <laughs> you know, you can't see anything. So there's no way you can defend yourself. There's no way you can call for help. There's no, you're just totally not aware. And it's like that until we can see our own mind. So that's the first step, seeing it. And then when you develop some stability, you can really start watching these judgments. It's easier first to watch them when they're about other people. And it's kind of fun, too. So just sit there like you're watching the tree. Just sit there, go to Berkeley, sit out, and just watch your mind make up stories about people. Based on, you don't know anything about people, but it's really obvious on retreat. I was just teaching a retreat. People come in, they got stories about everybody else on the retreat. They've never talked to them. Full-on stories. I'm in love with this person. You know, this person's my nemesis, and I, they represent everything that's wrong with America. You know, and it really gets gnarly, and it's so useful because to let it build up into something so ridiculous is really useful because then we can see, wow, this is happening all the time, and it just came out of nothing. You know, it came out of the past and my own weirdness. So your judgments are just—they're flat out wrong pretty much all the time. But we don't know that. We think they're accurate assessments, especially when they're about us. You know, so it's like, I mean, if you look at your judgment, I mean, there's so, when you work with people a lot, you realize, I mean, it's almost, it's almost sad and it's almost silly how universal a lot of the deepest ones are. And I'll just name them. There's something wrong with me. There's something broken in me. There's something that I can't fix that's fundamentally damaged. It's almost universal. And what is that? So that's a thought that came out of your own conditioning. Most of it was your attempt to make sense of the world when you were a little kid. How do I make sense of this, all these crazy people around me? You know, how do I make sense of like, the fact that all this stuff happening is happening beyond my control? It's so terrifying to think that way. Well, I think it'd be a lot easier if I just thought, there must be something wrong with me. Everybody else is fine. <laughs> yeah? That's a lot safer because, well, if it's wrong, something wrong with me, then maybe I can do something about it. I can be nicer, or I can be a better person, or I can be more spiritual. So anyway, it's good to be able to watch your mind judge and watch it over and over again. Don't try to stop it. It's seeing it that's going to free us. Because we have to see that it's so repetitive, it's boring and embarrassing. <laughs> it's embarrassing we believe any of it, because it's so ridiculous. If you had somebody stand in front of you and say the things to you that you say to yourself, you'd either punch them or start laughing. You know, it's like, it's just, it's not true. It's like, but the story is like the opposite of this radiance this natural radiance that I was talking about. The story is usually kind of the opposite. Not only am I not radiant, but I am broken. I can't radiate. Yeah? So that radiant, it can't be broken. It can't be damaged, actually. But we can develop a lot of ideas. And when we believe them, it's as if they were true. We live in a prison of our own making. It's a prison of an identity. And the identity is the story of who I think I am. And then there's the prison of who I think you are. And individuals can do this, and countries can do this, and communities can do this on all these different levels. This is where wars come from, and discrimination comes from, and slavery comes from, all of this. It's a big deal. And it's all happening in your own mind. And so it's really good to pay attention to. So it's 9.30. So let's just sit for a minute and kind of let... There have been a lot of words and we can just... Please, if anything, you know, tonight, 
was said that resonated with you and you know please take that with you if anything i said really didn't resonate or felt off just discard it you know take what's useful uh, and have it be a part you know something that informs your own inquiry it's really your own inquiry which is the most important thing These words are just meant to be pointers and assists in that process. So let's just share the merit. So may the merits of our practicing here together, all this energy, this kind of wholesome energy and intention that we're bringing to our practice and to our being here, this willingness we have to look to sit with ourselves and look deeply into our own experience and to see things as they are. May this serve for the welfare and the benefit of all beings everywhere. May all beings be happy. May all beings be peaceful. May all beings be free. One little announcement, and that is just, I have a little a group that meets on Sunday nights, too, in, in West Berkeley, um, in, in the Sawtooth Building, and beautiful yoga studio there. So if you ever don't have anything to do on a Sunday night, and you want to come uh, and sit, or you just want another night that you can sit, uh, feel free to come by. And uh, uh, you, If you go to Ashtanga Yoga Berkeley, uh, the website, if you just Google Ashtanga Yoga Berkeley, on their website they have uh, a little meditation link, and that has the the kind of directions and stuff. and Actually, James was very supportive in us kind of getting that group going. So hopefully that can be a support for you if you, if you want it. It's from 7 to 9 on Sunday evenings uh, on uh, Parker Street between uh, 8th and 9th. Thanks. Thanks. Between 8th and 9th.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.